Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another episode of MHTV. We're delighted to have you with us tonight. Um, we're going to be talking about suicide prevention in older adults. We've got a fantastic um, panel for you. Uh, before we get started, though, just be aware that this is a sensitive subject for some people, um, and then it can make you feel very uncomfortable if that's the case for you. Uh, we will be tweeting out some resources that you can use, but also feel free to just turn off if it's not for you. And um, we'll be looking forward to seeing you next time if it's not. Um, before, though, if you've got any questions and you want to join in, let me hand you over to my fantastic colleague, Dave. We'll show you how you can join in and ask questions today. Dave? Hi, everyone. It's great to have you with us again this week. And as always, uh, if you're watching on Facebook Live, then all you need to do is post a comment or a question on the live stream. Uh, the other way of interacting with us is on Twitter, and we'll be watching the MHTV hashtag. So if you want to make any comments, ask any questions, make sure you've got MHTV uh, hashtagged in that tweet and we will see it and we'll try and feed in as many of your questions and comments as we can tonight. Back over to you, Nikki. Okay, so let's get started by introducing our fantastic panel. First, we'll come to Jelly. Hi there. Um, thank you. Thank you for asking me to take part today. Um, as you can see from where I'm sitting, some of the time I try to be an artist, but I also work four days a week for the charity, the Mental Health Foundation. This is a UK-wide charity. We take a public health approach to improving mental health. And I guess we talk a lot about prevention as one of our core values. We're also the home of Mental Health Awareness Week, which happens in May each year. And this year, the theme is nature, which feels very pertinent as we begin to emerge from the pandemic. My role at the Mental Health Foundation is Programs Manager for Empowerment and Later Life. So there I, I work co-productively to develop new projects, often using creativity. Peer support underpins the work I do and has been very important to me personally. Currently, the work we're going to talk about tonight, I'm working on two new projects. One's called For the Moment Blue Prescriptions, which is taking an existing self-management course and thinking about nature-based activities to support that. And the other is a, is a project called Picture This, which picks up a lot of the work I've done in later life, but where we bring IT and tech into later life housing schemes and run peer groups using creativity virtually. And we're really thinking the importance of addressing this huge digital divide that's mm. particularly been highlighted by the pandemic. Fantastic, you've got such a lot on. Fantastic. <laughs> Let's come to Trish. Um, yes, hi everybody. I'm Trish Hufford Letchfield. I'm Professor of Social Work at the University of Strathclyde in Glasgow, Scotland. Um, and um, I'm working with the team. Um, I do research into ageing, mostly uh, about uh, to help people improve experiences of social care, accessing care in later life. Fantastic, Jeff. Uh, thanks, Nikki, and thanks for inviting me along this evening. And hello to everyone who's joining in. I'm a postdoctoral researcher between the University of Strathclyde and University of Oxford. The majority of my research is in around end of life and bereavement with different populations from when it's apparent with dependent children at end of life, and of course, um, bereavement by suicide in later life. Mm, so I've got lots to cover tonight. So let's get back to Jolie. Sorry, I interrupted you a second. You were still talking, Jolie. Sorry about that. You were telling us a little bit about your projects. And yeah, yeah. No, no. And I think I think it's important to say that my role covers the sort of specialism in later life, which I'm really mm. about. 
And this is quite unusual in a, in a UK mental health charity. We are, after all, a rapidly aging society. And it's kind of, it's interesting to look at, look ahead at the figures. And these, these are from 2015, but I think, I think they're still relevant. So by 2040, nearly one in four people in the UK, which is almost a quarter, will be aged 65 or over. And the number of people who are 85 is going to double in the UK. So you can say if people are living longer, it can really reflect positively on our society. But it also raises important questions about how they will be able to live well, thinking about people's quality of life and also how we can effectively support people's mental health. And very often, I think people are not comfortable or don't see the, late, the mental health of people in later life as a priority. But also my work at the Mental Health Foundation and work I've done in mental health is, has been informed by the fact that I use services quite dramatically two decades ago. Um, I'm really delighted to be part of this project with Strathclyde mm -hmm. about later life um, bereavement by suicide. It's really important to me, and this is a piece of work that's really co-produced. It's got a lot of different elements that both Tris and Jeff will pick up later. But I think for me, it's the element of peer research that's that's really important for this project. And we've thought very carefully how we look after all our mental health, as you mentioned already, Nikki. It's a pretty sensitive subject, but we've two peer researchers. And we're working co-productively with them. And we're also really keen that we can we support them, their well-being and mental health very carefully throughout this process. Because we do know that people who have been bereaved by suicide are at greater risk of suicide themselves. The peer researchers will be interviewing people with the same lived experience as themselves. And this is in order that we can better understand the, the support that people do and don't currently receive mm. when they've been bereaved by suicide. I think what we found already is there's a huge gap. A lot of people haven't, haven't have ever had an opportunity to reflect on the experiences that and what happened to them after they were bereaved by suicide. Because the research will also be analysed by the peer researchers and from the team at Strathclyde. And we're moving out with some recommendations so that people can be better supported in future. And I want to just end my, my little bit of the discussion by talking about someone. I'm going to call him Jim. Yeah. And this is kind of from a project called Standing Together, which actually started at the Mental Health Foundation as project manager for about six years ago now. So Jim was in his 80s. He was living with dementia in an extra care housing scheme where we were facilitating a weekly peer support group, which was all about having kind of deeper conversations about people's passions and identity to improve their well-being and mental health. We were doing a group session and it was kind of talking about people's childhoods. Mm. And Jim spoke about the death of his mother and she completed suicide when he was only seven. Despite his, his peculiarities in memory, he was able to speak so eloquently to the group about, about what impact that had had on his life, and particularly in talking about all the major events that his mother hadn't been able to attend. My understanding was that Jim had never had any support with his mental health to reflect on the impact of his mother's suicide. And I guess this is what this piece of work in Strathclyde is all about, thinking about 
people who've had the experience really having the chance to talk and prioritise what would make the difference and therefore that can be put forward as good practice for the future. Thank you. Oh, so important. Thank you very much for that work. It's really key. I think if we come to Trish, maybe she can give us a little bit of an understanding of the context of the literature that's, that's surrounding this so that we can get a handle on that. Yes, Nikki, um, we've been working on this area for a few years now and because it's quite a wide area and it's quite interesting how people say, well, why are you looking at older people? You know, why is it different for older people? Well, I mm. think that first of all, I think Jolie picked up on this issue about life course. You know, people can have trauma. We know a lot more now about people who have trauma in their early life and how this affects you know, their journey throughout their life. And particularly when people become older, they lose contact with people, they have cumulative losses, um, you know, they pick up things around at the age of society. And, you know, previous traumas can be triggered by an event, such, for example, loss of health or becoming dependent, and this can um, exacerbate suicidal tendencies. The other thing is that... Um, Suicide actually looks very different in older people. So if you look at, I had a quick look at the suicide statistics today on ONS, and it's quite actually quite hard to judge because um, the statistics are either in Scotland or England or England and Wales. And, um, but what we do know is that whilst they're not the highest group for suicide, um, that it definitely uh, is, there is a, 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 a distinctive increase in the oldest olds so of people over 80. And the other thing is that um, I personally don't think that all the, the statistics actually capture uh, older people's suicide because I don't know if you, I mean, you only have to talk to a few people, they know somebody who's given up, turned to the wall you know, somebody who slips away. Um, mm. And I think, you know, if you're working with uh, older people, it doesn't take long to hear from people say, saying things like, well, they should shoot us, shouldn't they? Or, you know, that we need to be put down. Or mm. you know, even, you know, in my own family, I've heard, you know, people talking about, well, I think I'm, um, I'm ready to go now. So mm. I think there is this very, it's a very complex area with older people, and it's very there's a lot of grey overlapping um, areas which we don't, you know, which we do, to be honest, shy away from. Yeah. Uh, there's been a, a quite a big growth in research in this area, and uh, more recently, we tried to we 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 did a review and we tried to capture what are the key concepts in in aging and suicide, um, and we identified four areas which where we think there's a realm for engagement, you know, where we might be able to intervene. So first of all, you know, this existential loneliness, this um, kind of sense of feeling detached from societies, older people are more isolated, perhaps they become dependent, perhaps mm. they, you know, they sense that their families probably, you know, they feel a bit of a burden, you know, they feel their self-worth or self-esteem mm. Um, is no longer what it was, they might start to sort of contemplate and think about, well, you know what, you know, my I've a sort of sense of completed life, they call it. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, this can be a coping mechanism for people. Um, but if, if and there's a balance to be had, you know, in enough to keep people going, 
Um, but if they have, say, a trauma, a, a loss, particularly a bereavement by suicide of a a, a child or a partner, mm. this could trigger them into more active, uh, what we call death hastening behaviours. So the other area is, you know, where people do start to develop wish to die and start to think about how they might hasten the end of their life. Um, and we know that this is this is very recognisable in care homes, in hospitals, when people, you know, are quite ill or quite dependent, and they may um, withdraw from, from, from others, stop eating and drinking voluntarily, refuse care, they may be silent, angry, they may collect medication. Um, I've even heard uh, people talking about people giving up sleep to hasten, you know, to hasten the end of their life. And they really have this sense of not really caring and wanting to go and then, and, you know, neglecting themselves and letting uh, themselves go. And then, of course, you know, you've got more active uh, areas of, of suicide. So I think being really, uh, one of the key messages from research is that um, it's, it's key that when we're in working with older people or in touch with older people and they give us signs that to be aware of, you know, what might be going on for the person inside because the internalised ages may prevent them from seeking help or be not feeling entitled to, to you know, yeah. ask for help. So it's important that we pick up on these conversations and that we explore with older people, how they're feeling, and we actually actively ask them about their uh, suicidal intentions if there's uh, some clues there. Mm. Um, I just wanted to just say a little bit more about a study that we did do, an empirical study, that where we did go into care homes, actually in your area, in uh, in uh, the north, north of Lo in, in London area, yeah. um, where we did, again, using peer researchers, um, we went into care homes and we did some focus groups with care home staff about this idea of, of giving up. And it was instantly recognisable by all the staff. Um, and they talked uh, very much about, you know, uh, people, as I talked about, you know, the people giving, though, um, beginning to withdraw and stop eating and drinking. But I suppose thinking about their role, um, you know, because they feel very unsure, uh, they would use a lot of distraction or um, yeah, diversion activities. And there is, you know, some areas of denial going on there because not because staff really don't know how to respond or what to do. And there's obviously yeah. this tension between them being seen to be giving care, expected by the families and all those that manage yeah. them and actually respecting the agency and the autonomy of the person and going with the person, you know, uh, uh, and sort mm. of making sure that, you know, they, they give them the respect that they deserve. Mm. And, um, you know, what we did find is that care homes do call in professionals when these situations occur. Most people already on, on medication. Um, there's a whole issue about mental capacity. And um, it's really important that staff who are closest to the, the, the resident have that opportunity to be involved because they often feel pushed out when the stakes are high. Um, and also, you know, they, 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 they feel you know, really angry when people perhaps get moved into hospital where people don't know them. You know, mm -hmm. there's 
couple of situations where staff followed people into hospital to continue to care for them because they know that nobody else would be able to give them a drink or you know get a sample from them or things like that so the messages there are we need to recognize it we need to engage with the older person staff need training to be able to follow up with with people how they're feeling we need skilled professional support you know when these situations occur to make sure that the older person feels supported and they get the best care possible um training supervision and a lot more guidance i could say a lot more but i'm very happy to share the the you know the write-ups yeah. of that um very very interesting study but and really um very important when you think about pandemic because of yeah. look at the messages we've given older absolutely people. look at what's happened in care homes you know it's it's it can only increase we really do need to mm. think about what we know from research mm. and um you know respond and do more work in this area mm, thank you for that. that's a really clear well, I mean, it's clear, but it's so complicated, isn't it? Because on one hand, you've got people not wanting to talk about this issue. On another hand, saying things which, if they were said about any other population, would be really shocking. But mm. they seem to bounce off everybody. People seem to think, you know, when people say, "Is it should we should we bother vaccinating people over sixty-five? And that that's been a discussion instead of saying, "What are you talking about? How could you mm. possibly say or think that?" And it's and not also, the fact that person by merit of their age are seen as vulnerable. Yeah. just by their age or their condition i mean it yeah. goes takes us right back to these medical models that we've mm. fought so hard mm. to overcome absolutely that sounds like so we've, we've got some some individual pictures from jolie there we've got this idea about the context so let's go to jeff and understand a little bit more about you know what's going on on sort of a local level maybe yeah so i've conducted a little bit of a scoping exercise looking into mm. how the national strategies that the united kingdom refer to suicide in later life and how they're addressing suicide prevention. And between the four strategies within England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, two of them did report higher rates of suicide for men who are in later life, but didn't necessarily identify many of the factors as to why that was happening. One um, sort of did pick up, you know, men in later life maybe are higher at higher risk if they're living in a rural context or if they have, you know, firearm ownership or pesticides or sort of those in higher risk occupational groups, such as farmers or um, veterans. Um, one strategy then did report that suicide rates amongst adults in later life have been decreasing in recent years, but an increase was anticipated due to an overall increase in life expectancy, which is kind of what Jolie was picking up a little bit earlier on. But in terms of suicide prevention within those strategies, uh, three of them did report that there was a need to promote the better mental health outcomes um, for adults in later life, specifically in relation to reducing social isolation, but they haven't necessarily provided examples of how that's being targeted for those who are in later life, but rather a little bit more of a general sense. Uh, one strategy did uh, sort of report a need for better access and talking therapies for those in later life, whereas another suggested there was a need to improve the identification and management of mental and physical illness for adults in later life but again there was a lack of guidance on how any of these things then would be achieved so then i took a little bit more of a look at what was happening at a local level and specifically within the local authorities within england so i looked between 61 of the local strategies there across rural and urban locations yeah. um 
And within each of the strategies, they're about, you know, maybe between 30 to 50 pages in length. Um, only 36 of those 61 actually referred to um, later life with those or in aging. And on average, sort of the terms old or elder, aging or later life was maybe only mentioned two times in, in each of the documents. Um, and again, how they sort of referred to suicide in later life then, uh, 461 reported that those were higher risk of suicide if a long-term partner or loved one had recently died. Two suggested um, they may be at high risk if they lack social support. Four suggested higher risk if they have chronic illness or a disability. And it was reported in 14 that those were at high risk of suicide if they were experiencing loneliness or social isolation. Uh, within that as well, five strategies did sort of report that there was higher rates of suicide amongst older people who was living in that location, but they didn't actually provide any explanations as to why that was. And there wasn't necessarily any clear examples of how that was going to be addressed. Uh, four of the strategies, which I find quite interesting, mm -hmm. uh, reported that older adults were of particular concern, but they weren't sort of defined as a high risk group um, compared to perhaps um, adolescents or sort of middle-aged men. But what I found was quite unique and very interesting in each of those contexts was in each of those local authorities, um, adults in later life typically made up between 35 to 40% of the population there. And just sort of very briefly then within each of the local authorities then, three strategies did um, sort of made reference to initiatives or things that were maybe planned or in place to support those um, against suicide prevention, such as men's sheds or men's health forums. Yeah encouraging you know older males in particular to become more socially active and improve their mental well-being um, one out of the 61 referred to befriending services and six reported a commitment to the provision of services targeted to reduce social isolation and loneliness for those in later life but the strategies did again similar to what i'm saying before that mm. the strategies weren't sort of providing any references to how were each of these things going to be achieved and it, I sort of got the general sense within of them. It was kind of more a general thing across the life cohort. Mm -hmm. And again, very similar to what Trish and um, Jolie had previously mm -hmm. been picking up is it did not necessarily identify any differences across the age span or the life course. Yeah, I mean, when you put it out like that, it's so stark, isn't it? It's, it's actually quite shocking. Before we get stick into sort of like what we think is going on, let's let's come over to Dave because I know some people are sending in some questions. Yes, we'll... absolutely. So Adrian's asked a couple of questions. Uh, I think uh, <clears throat> directed at Trish. Uh, are the traditional screening tools for older adults still valid? I'm wondering whether, as people can be active for longer, but also have medical mental health conditions for longer, are newer risk assessment tools available? That's a really great question and one that we're definitely working on. So uh, with uh, led by a colleague from Middlesex University, Helen Gleeson, who's a member of a, a, a suicide um, ageing research team, we have just conducted a systematic review of all the tools that the, have been used, applied in studies with older people around suicide um, thoughts and behaviour. And um, I can't remember off the top of my head, because actually she submitted the paper today. <laughs> I can't remember off the top of my head how many, but some of the key messages were that the language of some of the, the questions mm. that are asked are really not appropriate. 
Um, Secondly, most of the tools are used in clinical settings. We know, you know, there's very few people, older people, who actually get into clinical settings. Most people are in the community where mm. nobody's asking them the questions or using these tools. In our own study, we knew that we found that people were adapting tools or selecting questions, so they weren't using them systematically anyway. There has been a couple that have tried to sort of focus in on self-harm and also the more holistic, we really need to ask those wider issues of people about their, you know, social contacts, um, you know, about their health, about their context, you know, because those contextual factors are really important um, as uh, risk factors, predicting risk factors. So there are some good tools. So one of the things that we are actually doing, and if anyone would like to be interested in being involved, is we are going to um, run some uh, lay panels uh, with older people. We want to ask them some of the questions about how they think they should talk about it, who should ask them, what would they like to be asked? What do they think are the priorities? We're going to be showing them the six tools that we've selected to see what they think about them. And we've uh, got, we, we want to sort of develop a framework where we can co-produce an assessment tool that can be used in the community um, with older people themselves, and particularly that addresses those gaps in people. There's nothing that's that's really picking up on the cultural, race, you know, those uh, discriminations that people face and microaggressions, which um, must be um, contribute to suicide or, or, you know, poor mental health, and also mm -hmm. in for LGBT populations. And we've just done a, a study of LGBT older people's experience during COVID, and there's a, lots of worrying things going on, particularly for trans people, you know, who are isolated from their normal support during COVID times. So um, I hope that, you know, answered your question. And anyone who's interested in helping us with that, really love to hear from you. Well, I've made a note of that as you've been talking on Twitter. So obviously, if anyone wants any more information, they can always reply to that tweet because you're tagged in as well. And I'm sure you can supply some more information. Adrian's also put a supplementary question down. Uh, also, is impulsivity a factor like for younger teenage groups? Um, shall I answer that one? Um, it's not so much impulsivity um but i mean the the it's more about intent so whilst the figures are not so high completing suicide for older people the self-harm um has higher intent and the uh, uh suicide attempts are more successful hmm. and i think that's because people don't tend they won't reach out or people don't reach out to them and, you know, as I say, they may use other methods like self-neglect, poisoning. And um, I know that in men, older men, hanging is, uh, you know, is uh, one of the main methods used. Mm. Um, so um, I can't say hand on heart the impulsivity, but it is intent is definitely a significant factor with older people and success when there is high intent. Okay. Uh, now, Alfonso's asked a question. Uh, uh, he said that he agreed with a comment that you made earlier, Trish, about 
people, we often shy away from the subject. But in terms of health and social care curricula, what can or should we do to teach our health and social care students about this and equip them the necessary skills to support older people? Should I answer that one? Sure. Um, yeah, I think that, you know, we do uh, talk about suicide prevention and, you know, postvention, um, but um, I suppose one of the issues is that what we've found, and I think Jeff mentioned that in, you know, when he was talking about the scoping review and then some of the literature we've looked at, is that often services are not accessible to older people because older people are less likely to go online because I know that's very pop it's very popular you know people using those services and also that there are less targeted services for older people and so when we're looking at it in the curricula I think we need to be inclusive there's many areas problematic substance use is another one LGBT is another one so a general ageism in the curricula is a really important issue. When you talk about any issues about family care, problematic substance use, mental health, often older people don't get that we don't cover their issues. The other thing is about making sure that uh, students have the uh, good experiences of working in these types of services. Um, where they're going to, you know, uh, be able to look at more holistic uh, work with older people. Um, so again, you know, having a range of placements in age age uh, friendly or age appropriate services um, mm. is really important. Mm. And, and the older people, one more thing I wanted to say, yes. really important, is about we all have service user and carer strategies in our universities but there's very few older people involved in delivering education assessing students and that means that we have to go out to older people in the community and find ways to get them involved we have to outreach to them because they're not you know in the main going to come in as other groups may do and it's interesting because I, I know you've mentioned LGBT uh, plus a few times uh, during the conversation tonight. Uh, a question's come in. Uh, is the panel aware of any differences with older LGBT plus people and whether there are any, there are any specific needs, uh, particularly when it comes to family support, including family of choice? Uh, I think, you know, I don't know if Jeff's got any comments as well in terms of whether you know, sort of saying that there wasn't often mention of older people's uh, suicidality in, in local plans. Is there anything there about LGBT plus uh, in, in the local plans? Yeah, and certainly whenever we, or whenever myself and the team were looking through those strategies, we were specifically looking for, was there any references towards different minoritized groups or cultural groups? And actually they were sort of referenced more on a general sense or they were applied more towards a younger cohort. So, so certainly in terms of how they're identified and referred to in those strategies, it's sort of lacking at the moment. And that's sort of what we are hoping to establish more with this bereavement by suicide project. We want to include and involve them more so that their voices are going to be represented and heard within each of um, these um, interviews that we are currently conducting so that we can inform how best their needs can be individually um, met. 
I don't know if Trish, if you want to come in and maybe add a little bit more on your work within. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things about LGBT older people, obviously, there's, there's a, a big history there, um, lack of trust of mainstream services. And when LGBT older people uh, engage with services, often their uh, identities, gender or sexual identities are used to pathologize their mental health, or, you know, and also the marginalization or the microaggressions, the lack of access to services, direct discrimination, all impact on their mental health. So it is a bit of a, you know, it is a bit of a, a vicious circle. Um, I know certainly during lockdown, um, some of the trans older people that we interviewed um, who were really afraid of, who were like mm. the rest of us were experiencing mental health issues as a result of uh, being isolated at home, were absolutely terrified to seek help because if they were waiting to see, you know, they're on a waiting list to be assessed for a gender identity yeah. clinic, they would say, well, they're going to say, you know, that I'm not fit enough and that, you know, I'm not come to terms with my my issues and it will be used against them. So I think that that's a really, it's a really sensitive issue that, um, and the other thing is, I think the question was about accessing support from families, is that, you know, um, they're more likely to uh, receive informal care from, you know, family of choice or people in their network. And what's happened during the pandemic is because they've not been formally assessed for care, they've been invisible. Um, and, you know, because of the social restrictions and social distancing, they've not been able to, they've been cut off from those who would normally give them informal support or care or paid support and care. And then they're not registered with care providers. The care providers have not been reaching out to older LGBT people and they really have experienced uh, a lot of problems as a result. On the other hand, they also have fantastic informal care practices and the sense of community reciprocity has been mm. absolutely phenomenal. And we've learned a lot about LGBT older people's care practices during the mm. pandemic, which we, you know, which is really impressive, their resilience and um, you know, support for each other. Mm. Brilliant. Well, thanks for the answers to those questions. Uh, I think, Nikki, have you, have you got some sense to you yeah. as well? I've got some coming in from students, so that's lovely. Thank you very much, guys, for, for watching and participating as ever. Um, first one, Jolie, um, someone said that your pictures are great. <laughs> no, really, thank you. <laughs> um, uh, but also they were asking a question saying, and I think it's quite a long one, so I'll, I'll paraphrase it, sorry, guys, but it's about being a nursing for a long time and actually hearing a lot of the language that you've been saying, when, and they've, they're, they're expressing quite a lot of sadness. And, and please don't... I, take that in on yourself. It's something that's not just about you. A lot of people hear this stuff and, and say this stuff and are surrounded by this in terms of their work practices. You know, about people saying, oh, it's their time or assume that just because somebody's older, they're going to be sad automatically. Um, and, and you've put some examples in here about people stopping drinking. And so these kind of like hastening behaviors that we were talking about. And I guess um, what you're asking is what should you do? What should, how do you, how do you respond to people when they say things like that? Because it's, ubiquitous isn't it something that's around us all the time in some in some care settings not all so i think it would be helpful if maybe you guys could think about some of the things that students could say to actually disrupt this kind of language any suggestions 
I think I think it's it's about the context that people are working in, and also the lack of reflective spaces to share this sadness and have your own experiences as a worker validated as well. I also think people need to know that they've been heard, and I think that's yeah. the thing. When Trisha was answering the question earlier about kind of so how the curriculum can be changed, I also think there's some there's something I. We've gone in as an organisation to do training for like care staff in extra care housings, and it's a it's a real it's really it's 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 how you have difficult conversations using appropriate language, how you how you build that confidence, and some for me is about people practicing, but also having an opportunity to reflect. And a lot of people are worried about making something worse, but I think very rarely is that the case. It's important to be heard. And I think if you're heard, you're not ignored. And maybe then there's a conversation about what would help, what, what might make a little bit of a difference. It's not about fixing something. It's just trying to get the person, you've, you've acknowledged what's happening for somebody and it's very difficult, but is there what is there what things might help? Just a tiny bit, nothing, nothing very large, but it's, it's kind of that, it's a real skill having those conversations. But I, I also think that, working these settings people need space for reflection and support for themselves as well it's yeah. really important yeah. Do you know what I that's... think that um one of the things that we, the care workers told us was that um you know it it's when you're seeing people um who are giving up um or expressing wish to die it can be quite a reminder of your own mortality it's quite uncomfortable yeah. it's quite taboo and uh, and also you know this idea that we don't want to be old we don't want to be that person um and you know that feels really uncomfortable if we don't want to be that person then how we can't how can we expect people to be that person so again it reflects how we the value of older people in our society you know the how we value them and you know the the fact that they've got old bodies or that they can't do other things doesn't mean that they don't have other values mm -hmm. um so i think it's a much wider structural yeah. problem mm -hmm. did you want to add such if you don't have to because i've got a question for you as well if you fancy it did you want to add to this one yeah, no, sorry. So very much just in relation to what what Jolie was saying, you know, if, if that's somebody who's who's taking the time to be honest with you and telling, you know, they're expressing how they're feeling in that situation and mm -hmm. about giving them the opportunity to voice that. And I think, you know, it's very easy to get into a mindset of being, oh, don't be silly, don't be talking like that. You know, it's about exploring with with that person, with that older person, mm -hmm. what it is that they're they're going through and what they're experiencing. and. And finding out how best you know you could help them in that situation as opposed to almost ignoring the elephant in the room in that situation and that's something we are very much hoping to explore a little bit more in the the lay panel discussions we're doing with older people so we want to identify more as what language would they prefer that we're using as we're having this conversation is it is it using the terms like giving up or you know wish to die that's what we want to explore a little bit more so if you if you have an opportunity to follow along with our work, we'll certainly be sharing as that comes along and we'll, we'll be putting those recommendations and guidance out based on what older people are saying to guide future mm. practice for you. Mm. Yeah, and thank you for sharing that that comment because it can't it's not easy, is it? I think we've all been in situations where you know we really feel the emotional labor of the work that we do. 
And we've all been around things that make us uncomfortable. And we've had to speak up sometimes. So I think the key people are saying is about reflection, support, supervision. And, and the fact that you know it's not right is really important. That says a lot about your, your character. So good. Mm. I know it's uncomfortable, good. Um, there's a question here from Jeff that begins, your job sounds like a nightmare. But I think we'll press on with the question here. Um, I, I hate reading strategy. I read it, I get to the end, and I can't make any sense of it. What's What's the secret? Which I think is a great question from a student who wishes to remain anonymous. <laughs> well, certainly you want to be looking for the clear things. So having a very clear question in mind of what it is you want to be looking for. So for me, it was very clear. How do they refer to older people in later life? I guess a good place to start out in any strategy is do a quick search of terms within the document. So for me, that was how often did this document say old, elder, later life, etc. And actually that made the job easier in some because I got into some and found there was no reference whatsoever. And then it was a quick scan through key sections of what I was looking for just to validate what it was I was looking at. Um, but don't undermine the power of that control F and searching for your keywords because you will find <laughs> exactly what you're looking for pretty instantly. <laughs> Yeah. And Jeff uh, supervised a student. We had a student, psychology student, help Jeff with the scoping review. So um, she really enjoyed it. I've just read her essay about it. So you've also got the thing called the old executive summary or the easy read guide, both of which can just help you get your eye into what you're looking at if you're trying to scan. Yeah. Has, has anyone got any more uh, hints and tips? Because I think we, we've already got 40 minutes down, so we do need to start thinking about finishing up. But if anybody else wants to comment on the um, how do you make long documents readable? I think one of the things that we don't look for is the silences. Sometimes we look mm. actively for things, but sometimes it's about what's not there. And the other um, thing that I find uh, useful when looking at documents is whose voices are present. Like how did the document, what's underpins how the what is the problem that the document is trying to address and whose problem is it and what is put forward as the solution and yeah. who have they consulted in that and what we often find is that that people talk about doing focus groups with people in the midlands they said this they said that they uh, have you know a couple of their statistics and and uh, problems or issues that have arisen, you know, whatever triggered their review, but there's very few policies that actually have professional voices in them. So sometimes saying whose voices are present and whose voices are absent is a really good question to ask a policy document. I like that. Yeah, absolutely. So let's, let's start to wrap up now. So can we come to Julie, if there's anything that you want, you know, people to, to take home message, anything you really want to just emphasize again? Well, I, I think picking up from what Trish just said, I think for me too often older people are not part of this conversation. And I just think, I think it's okay thinking forward, you know, it may not always be easy to ask people questions, but, you know, my job over the last six years has been amazing what I've learned about people in later life. I've been privileged to have had so much exposure to people and their stories and their lives, mm -hmm. passions, but also but also their struggles as well. And not to not to always feel that you have to have a solution. But I think as Jeff said, mm -hmm. yeah. to acknowledge quite often I think in in later life people are not heard. And I think just to have the sense of being listened to is very 
very important. And I've got two points that don't quite fit, but I just want to raise them anyway. I just think it's really important that we acknowledge how the power dynamic has been so disempowering for people in later life. And I think that we all must think about digital inclusion going forward. I think the care, later life housing, care, care homes will have Wi-Fi pretty soon. We're in the process of trying to sort to work with people. But mm. that's just so important. And we need to commission not only for physical health, but for well-being and quality of life as well going forward. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, fantastic. Um, Trish, is there anything you wanted to leave, leave people with a message? Yeah, just to say that um, older people... I always think they're watching us and seeing, they actually know how we see them and they internalise that. They don't speak out against it. Obviously, some people might be more feisty than others, but they, they're they watching what's going on in society and they're taking it in and it's having, you know, it can have a negative impact. So we need to really reframe how we see older people you know, make and ha have equal relationships with them. They're not there to be patronised or they're not somebody that we provide services to. There are a wealth of expertise. They, they can give a lot of very good advice and we don't make the best use of them. And they're all working together and supporting each other. Don't underestimate that. We need to facilitate that. We don't need to have their answers. They can find their own answers, but we need to give them the opportunities to do so. Fantastic. Again, yeah, really useful. Um, Jeff? Yeah, I think I'm going to kind of stay a little bit more just than what Jolie was saying. And it's about mm -hmm. starting a conversation with someone. And it's not just starting it and then leaving it there. It's it's an ongoing thing. And, you know, whether you're you're listening in as a practitioner or as, a, you know, a future practitioner or as a family member, it, it's just about guiding them, you know, through something that maybe somebody's going through or being concerned about someone or whatever that is. And it's just acknowledging them and giving them the voice mm -hmm. to, to air whatever that, that individual is experiencing or feeling and, mm -hmm. and continuing that on that it's not just picked up and, and left off there. And it's, it's giving the appropriate reassurances and advice and guidance along the way. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. Um, Dave? Should we come to you, finish up? Well, yeah, and it's been a great conversation tonight, hasn't yeah. it, Nikki? And just yeah, as we've been talking, I've been uh, getting the spreadsheet open for the next few weeks of episodes. So, you know, we've got some really exciting topics coming up soon, haven't we? So obviously, like you said before, you know, great conversation tonight. But next week, we're going to be talking about mental health and social work. The week after, we're going to be talking about uh, an alternative view of a uh, student placement uh, from one of the uh, editorial board of the Mental Health Nursing Journal is going to talk about her experiences in Thailand. Uh, and also the week after, we're going to be talking about parity of esteem, learning from the other side. So, yeah, it's, it's, we've got some really good episodes coming up, haven't we? Diverse, diverse. Yeah, and thank you so much for your time tonight. And, and as, as everyone has been saying, if this has been something that's made you feel uncomfortable or upset, don't hide from that. It's really important to acknowledge those sorts of feelings. If you're having them, uh, reach out and get some support. And we'll certainly be tweeting things out that you can use as part of debrief. But thank you again, everybody. Really, really appreciate your time tonight. I've loved this conversation. Really helpful. Um, and thank you very much, you guys, for watching and asking questions and joining in. Take care. Good night. Night, night everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.